listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit harvestkelowna.ca. Good morning, everybody. This is, uh, this is a real honor and, um, and a privilege to be with you this morning. Uh, Meldon didn't mention it in his, um, in his video, and I, and I actually wondered if you might... Um, in some senses, uh, I'm here this morning because of Meldon's role in my life. So it was, I was sitting there just thinking about the story uh, this morning while we were singing. It was 28 years ago, which means it's over a quarter of a century ago. That, that's a kind of one of those aha moments where you realize, ooh, time's ticking. So it was uh, 28 years ago, I was at Briarcrest College in my first year as a freshman, and I had um, I'd grown up in a small town in Elkhorn, Manitoba. Uh, my father was a lay pastor in our church, actually, and they'd started the first kind of mission church in our community. Uh, my dad was a teacher. My mom was a nurse. And uh, growing up in our small community, my whole vision for life was that one day I would be a phys ed teacher. That's all I wanted to do. In fact, I thought it would be wonderful to go back to the town of Elkhorn, 500 people in the whole community, and be the phys ed teacher there. I actually thought maybe I'd step it up a notch and go to Verdon, a town of 1,000, and be the phys ed teacher there. But that was kind of like moving to the big city, so I was kind of nervous about that. And, uh, and it was in my, uh, in my first couple of months at Briarcrest, I was playing hockey on the hockey team and, uh, and uh, got my knee uh, tore up when I was playing with them. And uh, I was sitting in a, in a service that we had and just really kind of wrestling with a lot of things in terms of my identity and my plan for my life. And, and, uh, and I just spent some time going forward in one of the services saying, okay, Lord, maybe being this phys ed teacher and making sports the center of my world isn't what you have for me. And I'd be open to doing something else. And I remember in that time, actually, Meldon came and he met with me, and we went into another room and processed and prayed together. I don't, I don't know for sure if he remembers that story or not, but it was, that was actually a really significant transition moment in my life, which, which shifted me to move into a new path. And it was about a three-year process where I said, okay, Lord, I'm into whatever you want. I'm going to continue to head towards being a teacher because that's what I know. But if you want to shift that, then I'm open to it. And it was over kind of that next three years that God did it. And um, wow, here we are today. So if today doesn't go completely uh, as you think it should, in one sense, you can blame Meldon for that. Okay, so we'll just lay that right on, right on his shoulders. Um, hey, this morning we're going to spend some time in Psalm 139. So if you have your Bibles, you can, you can open those up uh, to 139. Um, and we're going to just spend a little bit of time looking at, you know, what does it look like for us to actually live in a way where we are truly trusting the Father? Um, I have a friend, his name is Todd. Uh, Todd is a, uh, he's an associate pastor now up in Prince George. Uh, for a number of years, he was a youth pastor in Terrace, BC, and he'd interned for me when I was youth pastoring in Canmore, Alberta, a number of years ago. And uh, Todd's a wonderful, he's a wonderful dude, and, and he's got a great family now and kids. He's doing really well. But I remember when he first went to Terrace, B.C., he was single and uh, really excited about the possibility of maybe one day being married. And so he'd met this young lady, and her name was Maya. And Maya was uh, a wonderful uh, young lady that he was getting to know and quite excited about getting to know her. In fact, like he thought maybe this, this would be the one. And so he relayed this story to me of this one evening. He uh, He'd been out for a walk. It was, it was getting a little later at night, so it was dark already. He was just going out trying to clear his mind. And he was walking past the home that Maya was living at at that time, and she was living with, with her uncle and aunt in the home. And, 
And as he was walking past, uh, Maya actually drove into the yard, shocking, you know, right in front of him. What great timing. You know, I thought, oh, this is wonderful. And she drove into the yard right in front of Todd, and then she got out of the car, and she saw Todd walking, you know, on the road and goes, hey, Todd. And Todd's like, oh, hey, Maya. And she's like, Todd, would you, um, do you want to come in for like a coffee? Like my aunt and uncle are here. It'd be great. I'd love you to connect them and, and would love to just come and hang out for a bit. And I remember as Todd told me the story, I was just thinking to myself, what a wonderful moment this is, Todd. Like this is an invitation to go, you know, deeper in relationship with Maya. That's great. Could open some wonderful doors. And, and I remember just thinking to myself, like obvious answer when this young lady that you are attracted to and is a wonderful young woman invites you in for coffee, obvious right answer is, I would love to. Do you know what I mean? Like if you're, if you really want this relationship to move forward, that's the right answer. And then I remember kind of thinking to myself, like maybe if that's not the option, there could be another option, you know, in response that I don't think would be quite as good, but would still leave the door open to further relationship. Todd could, you know, say to Maya, oh man, thank you so much, but it, you know, it's not going to work tonight. Could I take a rain check? Would love to do this again. That would be another, you know, option that you could choose, which would, you know, keep the door open for the relationship to go further. Not as good as the first one, but certainly, you know, a decent option. Well, as Todd relayed this story to me, I realized he chose neither of those options. He, he chose to move uh, into a, he created his own option, a third option. So what happens is Maya pulls up, she drives into the driveway, she gets out of the car, sees Todd, says, Todd, uh, man, my, mom and, my aunt and uncle are home, love that, why don't you come in and have coffee, it'd be great for us just to hang out a bit. And Todd, he kind of stops and he looks at Maya and then he just kind of goes, I don't know. And then he just slowly turns and he walks away. Do you know what I mean? I remember just thinking to myself, that's a really bad option, Todd. Like that's not working. You know, I think we have this really interesting tension um, in our journey when it comes to relationships, don't we? We have, um, we all have this deep desire to be loved, correct? Like this is part of what's what's in us. This is part of, of what it is to be made as human beings. It's part of what it is to be made actually uh, for community in the same way that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are community and, and intimately love each other. We've been designed to experience that within the context of relationship. And so this is in us. We long to be loved. But there's this tension that we experience in light of that deep desire. Um, in one sense, uh, we know that if we are going to experience love, then we must be known, right? We have to open ourselves up to others and we have to enter into relationship and we need to know them and we need to allow them to get to know us. In fact, you know, the level of, in, you know, the potential level of intimacy that we can enjoy with someone is directly related to how intimately we're going to allow them to know us. But on the flip side, we also have this tension. Well, you know, because we want to be loved, we know we need to be known. But also because we want to be loved, sometimes we're really afraid of being known. Isn't that true? Because sometimes we kind of have this fear, like, what happens if I allow this person, you know, into my journey with me and they get to know me? And then, and then what happens if maybe they don't actually appreciate who I actually am? And so for some of us, we kind of put up facades or we create distances because we're scared. What if they actually get to know who we are and then they don't like what they see and they leave and reject us? Or maybe even worse, what happens if they actually get to know who we are and they don't like what they see and, and so then they begin to try to change us. They begin to start to take over our lives and start to try to shift 
who we are. And I think, you know, I think this creates this real tension for us that makes truly relating in deep ways difficult. We, we want to be loved, and, and so because we want to be loved, we know we need to be known, but also because we want to be loved, sometimes we're afraid to allow people to know us. And I wonder if maybe this is um, not unlike the tension we sometimes feel with the Father. Do you know what I mean? That may be one of the reasons why sometimes we wrestle with intimacy with God is because, you know, we know that if we are going to be truly known by God and know Him, then we need to open ourselves up and allow Him to enter into deep places in our lives. But we also know that if we do that, that there's a chance that, you know, for some of us, you know, if we don't really have a right understanding of God as Father, perhaps some of our relationships here on earth have negatively shaped our vision of who God is. We have this fear that He might reject us. Or even worse, maybe, maybe He wants to change us. You know, we wrestle with that, especially in a culture. You know, we wrestle in a culture that says your life is your own. You should do with it whatever you want, whatever feels good. And this is just an ethos that the culture places upon us as a, as a vision for true fulfillment. And yet, the Bible is so clear that God is calling us to something different. And, you know, I think for some of us, for myself anyways... You know, when I wrestle with this tension within me, I'll take kind of little forays into trusting God. I'll give Him surface things, perhaps things that don't mean much to me, things that I'm not, you know, deeply, intimately invested in. Maybe I'll give Him a couple of hours a week in certain environments as a way of engaging in a type of knowledge. But when it comes to to core issues, when it comes to identity issues, issues like family, issues like dreams, Issues like finances or passions, even issues like grudges or hurts, things that we hold against others, things that we we grip onto. When it comes to our calling, uh, we're not sure we really want to be known at that level, um, loved at that level. And I think the reason why we wrestle with that is because we're really not sure, can we trust Him? Like, God, can I really trust you at that deep core level of who we are? And so we have this problem. We want to be known because we want to be loved, but we don't want to be known because we want to be loved. You know, it's interesting to me, we have a high capacity to fool and deceive ourselves. And in a culture where many times much of our relational engagement happens online, we actually have this great capacity to curate how we express ourselves and dictate how others see ourselves. But the reality is we cannot fool or deceive the Father. God already knows us. And here's the wonderful truth. Not only does He know us, but He loves us. And He is not easily pushed away. Oh, He's not easily pushed away. And so He calls us to experience intimacy with Him as we move into deeper trust. Okay, where do we see that? Psalm 139. Psalm 139 is, you know, probably the passage in Scripture that most clearly speaks of the character of God in terms of His power and His knowledge of who we are. And, of course, what it looks like to kind of wrestle with that tension. And David, who was a man after God's own heart, uh, was a great king of Israel in the Old Testament. Uh, he had his struggles, his ups and downs. But, but the wonderful thing about the Psalms is we have this opportunity to see what it is to have this kind of really honest, raw relationship and journey with the Father. And he removes so many of kind of the, kind of the, um, the facades that we create in terms of the relationship. And it just, he just has this way of being very 
very real. I was just, I was um, talking with one of my friends who's going through just a horribly difficult season of her life the other day, and I was reading through the Psalms, and I, and I just, I sent her the, a Psalm of lament of David just saying like, God, where are you? Why can't I trust you? Why won't you deal with my enemies? Why is my life being torn to shreds? Like, I need you. I'm dying without you. Where are you? Why are you far from me? And I just, and I'm so thankful that God gives us these spaces, these pages where we can actually see what it looks like to have an honest and real relationship and journey with God. I love it so much. And we see this here in Psalm 139. And listen to what David says in Psalm 139, beginning in verse 1. He says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. Did you hear that? He's actively searching out, moving forward, engaging. You are acquainted with all my ways, even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful me. It is high. I cannot attain it. You know, the first thing that, that David speaks about God's knowledge is this completeness of his knowledge. You know, it's one thing to know someone's past. But what David says here is he knows my future. He's going ahead of me. And not just actions. He doesn't just know actions. He doesn't just understand what we're about to do. But it says that he understands thoughts. And not even just thoughts. It says he understands the motivations of our thoughts. Do you catch that? He actually understands the motivations of our thoughts. You know, one of the things that we've been working with our boys, you know, for years now is just... Even when it comes to posting, you know, on Instagram and, and, and Snapchat and things like that is, is we're not simply asking them about questions about what are you posting. We have those conversations all the time, but we're asking questions about why are you posting that? Like, what's the motivation behind that, son? What are you looking for? And, you know, we wrestle with trying to express and talk about that. And I wrestle with that even in my own life when I'm posting things online. What is it that I'm looking for? What do I want from others? What's motivating this movement? What, you know, God doesn't have to ask the question because he knows He actually knows what motivates our thoughts and what we say. He knows not just what we have said, but he knows what we are going to say. Do you think about that? Like there is a completeness to God's knowledge of us. And this is of us as individuals, not just of us generally as a a human population. Like he he knows us. He goes on and he says in verse 7, he says, where shall I go from your spirit? Oh, where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. So first we see that God's knowledge is complete. And then we see that his knowledge is intimate and active. It says that he is actively invested. He says, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. He's he's engaged in our journey. He's engaged in what's taking place in our experiences. You know, again, I think think sometimes um, when we think about God, we have this vision of a God who is is here but generally distant. One of the most significant um, survey or research projects on the state of spirituality amongst adolescents was done about 10 years ago by a gentleman named Christian Smith. 
And one of the things that he discovered when he researched teenagers and their relationship with God is he found that most quote-unquote Christian teenagers, when they think about God, they think about a God that wants us to be moral or good. When they think about God, they think that God's primary purpose to make us feel good and be happy. And then when they think about the presence of God, they think about a God who's generally distant, has kind of started things and got it going. But then when things get difficult, he'll come down and kind of fix it. But then he goes back up to his place and we get to continue on and just live our lives. But that's actually not the vision that God gives us here. The the vision that, that David speaks about is a God who is actively present always, engaged, invested, moving, working. Uh, my son, Cole, um, plays basketball. Both of my boys actually play basketball. Cole plays it at a little bit more of, a, of an intense level than Peyton. And, and, and we've, both my wife and I, we really enjoy sports. We enjoy being with our boys and watching them. And we enjoy the community that we have when it comes to being a part of, of those environments. And I remember when Cole was much younger, um, I would travel quite a bit when I was speaking or doing different things. And because I wanted to be the dad that was present when I was home, I would take my son to his basketball practices and actually stay at the basketball practice. Okay, so this is 10-year-old basketball, not super exciting ball, practices even less exciting. Many parents would drop off and move away and then go. And I just, I remember thinking to myself, I'm going to be the hyper-invested parent. I'm going to be present. I am going to watch 10-year-old basketball practice. So I remember this one day I, I dropped, I, we got to practice and I went in. He was practicing. I noticed a few other parents that were, you know, there as well. And I thought, ooh, these are my people. We're all very engaged here. Wonderful. And then I remember, you know, partway through the practice, I'm kind of sitting on the lower level of the stands. And all of a sudden, I hear this basketball dribble right up to me. And then suddenly it stopped. And I look up. And there's Cole. And Cole's standing right in front of me. And he looks at me and goes, Dad? I go, yes, son. He goes, you are the only person on your cell phone here in the gym. And then he just slowly turned and dribbled away. You know, you know, it's one thing to be present, right? It's another thing to be engaged or invested in. And God is engaged and invested. He's not just present. He is with us. He is here, engaged in the journey. So not only is he complete, but he's also intimate and active. And then finally, his knowledge is powerful. Listen to what he says in verse 13. He says, For you formed my inward parts, You knitted me together in my mother's womb. That word inward parts, what that actually means is it's speaking about our psyche or kind of the core of our identity, the ethos or the essence of what makes us up. He says, you formed those in me. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in secret, Intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast are the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. You know, his knowledge is so powerful. And here's what I think this says. He has not simply discovered us. He has created us. He has made us, our psyche, personality, identity, our physical reality, our purpose, and our positions. He's actually designed us for the moments that we find ourselves in. You know, this is amazing to me when I think about God's active work and knowledge in creating us and then positioning us. And as I've wrestled with what does that mean, especially in the difficult moments that we find ourselves in, 
or the moments that aren't reflective of his kingdom way. They're more reflective of broken and sin. And I say to myself, God, what is your work here in this moment? And what this passage says to me is it says that he's not surprised by the moments that we found ourselves in. And that in some way through experiences or his created work, he has actually prepared us to live in a kingdom way in whatever moment we find ourselves. We don't always get to dictate our environments. We don't get to control that. Very, in fact, very rarely do we truly get to control the types of environments that we are in. But what we can know in whatever environment we are in is that God has gone before us and he has prepared us to be able to act in a way that reflects him even in the midst of deep brokenness. And so we have this sense of hope and purpose in whatever moment we find ourselves in. This is God. This is him. This is his knowledge and presence in our lives on a moment-by-moment basis. Now, when we think about this, and we really begin to contemplate the idea of God being this present and intimate, this can actually create a bit of a tension in our lives. Um, my wife and I have always, you know, since we've been married, we've almost always had a, a college student living with us. That's just kind of part of in our journey. We've loved having students in our home, and so that's, that's just part of what we've done. My wife is really social and hospitable, and so we love having people in our, in our place. That, that's probably why we love working at camp so much, because it's just like, woo! We've got a big communal home here. This is great. So, you know, and it, and it has its moments, right? There's moments when you kind of go, ooh, could use my space just a little bit. I remember one of those moments. It was actually kind of an extended moment, like a six-month moment, because that's how long this gentleman, Jeff, lived with us. He was with us for like six months. And Jeff was, he was kind of a unique individual. In fact, I really, I credit Jeff because I think this, um, he probably taught me more about the idea of omnipresence than anyone else did in my life, okay? So Jeff was just always there. Like, it didn't matter where we were, Jeff just kind of was present. So Jen would, like, be in the fridge, he'd open, shut the door, boom, there was Jeff. Oh, hi, Jeff. And we'd sit down for supper, there was Jeff, we'd be in the living room, there was Jeff. I remember, I remember one day I get a phone call from Jen, I'm like, what are you doing? She goes, I'm hiding in my bedroom. I'm like, what are you hiding in your bedroom for? I'm hiding from Jeff. I'm like, this is getting out of control. And then I remember the night when we discovered that the bedroom was no longer our place to hide. My wife and I, we were kind of having one of those discussion moments that many married couples have at different, you know, spaces in their journey. So we're having a discussion, and I think it kind of unnerved Jeff a little bit because suddenly he just arrived in our bedroom. He's like, hey, everybody. And I'm like, you are not making this better, you know, like you need to leave now forever you need to leave. So that was kind of the moment when we decided we shouldn't have Jeff with us anymore. And you know, here was the problem. Like Jeff was so present that it almost felt like we were kind of losing ourselves. Do you know what I mean? You know, when we really think about the presence of God and how close he actually is, if we're really honest, one of the tensions that we might have is that if we, if we really lean into this idea that God is this close, you, you, you know, we have to come to the conclusion that in some ways, if we allow him in this space, we could lose ourselves. Like we could really begin to lose ourselves. And I think David actually understood this. You know, it's funny, in, at the very beginning of Psalm 139, in verse 6, David acknowledges God's presence, right? He begins to speak of it. And listen to what he says in light of that. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Now, you know, we, actually, we often get the interpretation of that verse a little bit wrong. If you really understand 
what the Hebrew is saying, it's not this happy excitement about the presence of God that David is expressing. It's actually this sense of being overwhelmed by it. In fact, what he's really saying is he's saying, hey, this is overwhelming to me. This is actually too much for me. Literally, it says, wonderful is this knowledge from me. It is against me. I can't take it. I'm overwhelmed by it. It's too much. And we understand that because he goes on in verse 7. He goes, well, where can I flee from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Like, you're so close. I got to get out of here. Like, I'm losing myself to you, God. And this, there's, this, there's this tension that he finds where he goes, you're so close. Like, like you're taking over my being. You know, we work so hard to filter the information that people have on us. We curate ourselves both online and in person, presenting only the best possible elements of ourselves. But the fact is we can't curate ourselves before God. He absolutely knows us. We can't fool Him. We can't move from Him. We can't, we can't run from Him. He is here. He completely knows us, and He is completely engaged. You know, it's really interesting to me. Oftentimes we pray, God, please come. And I just kind of think that's a bit of a foolish prayer maybe. Like God, first of all, needs our invitation to come. Do you know what I mean? He's actually the king. He can come wherever he wants. And number two, he's actually here. He's really here. We don't, we don't have to pray, come. Like he's already here. He's already been here. He is present. We can't curate ourselves from God because he knows us. But here's the great thing. We actually, there's actually great news here because, because here's, what, here's what the issue is. When we have people this close, there's a sense that we might lose ourselves. And I think there's this truth with God. If we allow God, if we engage the reality that God is this close, what if we begin to lose ourselves? Like what if he begins to take things in our lives that we've clung to and gripped to, our fears, our dreams, our relationships? Like what, what if there's these things that have actually begun to define us and he wants to begin to change those things in us? What do we do with that? Well, here's what we do. We, we come to a place where we acknowledge that God is not against us. He's actually for us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He's created us and he deeply loves us. And if that's true, then, then here's what we cling to. That if there's something that God wants to remove from us or change in us, it was never supposed to be a part of us in the first place. Do you know what I mean? That if there's something in our, you know, that we've used to create an identity, if there's something that we've used to define us, if there's something that we've placed ultimate hope in above our hope in God, then he comes into our life and he begins to do this searching and this shifting work. And there's certain things that he says, hey, I, that, I don't want you to grip that so tightly. That, that doesn't need to define you anymore. That, you need to forgive that person. You need, to, you need to surrender that. And there's things in our life that he wants to begin to deal with when we really understand who he is. In those moments, we come to a place and we say, okay, God, I'm going to trust you. You know me better than I know myself. You created me. When you went to the cross, Jesus Christ, you did it to recreate me. And so if there's something in me that you need to take from me, I'm going to trust that it was never really supposed to be a defining piece of me in the first place. And like a surgeon, though this will be difficult, ultimately this is healing. Ultimately this is life. And so I'm in. I'm yours. Whatever you want, I'm yours. 
And you know, we see this wonderful shift in David as we go through the Psalms. He moves from how can I get away from you to actually, you know, pressing into the reality of who he is. And and he begins to trust him and his trust is expressed in a couple of ways. First of all, his trust is expressed in this wonderful joy because he begins to understand that God won't leave him. That no matter what he discovers, God is in. Listen to what he says. He says, I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. He says, my soul knows it very well. Wonderful are your works. He says, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. And then in verse 18, listen to what he says. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Do you hear what he says? He says, you know me. This is amazing. Your thoughts are unbelievable. He says, I wake up and you're still here. It's like, this is amazing, God. You're still here. You know, when Jen and I um, first got married, I remember, uh, I remember one of the things on that first night that was really cool to me was this idea that, um, that, I, that I never had to leave her. Do you know what I mean? It was the first time in our relationship where we were going to bed together and, um, and we would wake up together. That, that there was none of this kind of leaving moment. And I remember the first moment I woke up and I rolled over and this, I was like, whoa, there you are. Hey, you know, and I was like, wow, you're still here. So cool. You know, I thought that was great. Now, we've been married for almost 20 years. I got to tell you um, that the idea of her still being here when I wake up in the morning has actually more weight than it did back then. Do you know what I mean? Like there are some moments I wake up and I roll over and I look at Jen and go, wow, you're still here. After what I did yesterday or last night, wow, you're still here. After I said what I said, wow, you're still here. After I acted the way I acted, wow, you're still here. And you know, this is David's experience with God. He turns over to God and he says, you know me so intimately and you're still here. This is amazing. You know, this is our God, you guys. Like His love is what we call an agape love. It's not based upon how great we are. It's based upon how great He is. And of course, in some ways, that offends our cultural sensibilities because our culture has told us over and over again to look at ourselves in the mirror and tell ourselves how wonderful we are and build this kind of self-love. The problem, of course, for many of us is we can look in the mirror for a little bit and tell ourselves that's neat. But when we walk away from the mirror, the truth of what we did the night before is still present. And it's kind of hard to keep lying about ourselves after we're really aware of what took place there. But when it comes to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, he comes to us and he says, we don't have to lie about ourselves. We can acknowledge the brokenness and the sin, but what we do is we acknowledge that, but we shift to the beauty of God and Jesus Christ and the reality that no matter what we did there, he is still here. And not only is he here, not only did he create us, but he is recreating us. He is redefining us. He is reshaping us and making us something new. And we have hope and we have life because he's still here. So there's this great joy because he is still here. But then the second thing that happens is that this trust becomes uh, expressed in a wonderful humility because we know that he deeply loves us. Listen to how David ends. In verse 23, he says this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. You know, what's fascinating is at the beginning of the psalm, David acknowledges that God is searching him. That's what he does. But he's not really speaking about his response to him. Now, after understanding who he is, the intimacy of his knowledge, the fact that he's for him, not against him, this is no longer just an acknowledgement of what is, but this is an expression of what he wants. It's an invitation He's saying, God, come, 
Search me. Know my heart. Know the very deep core of who I am. And don't just search me. Try me. Know my thoughts. And when you see things in me that are grievous, there's things that aren't of your way, because of who you are, because you know me better than I know myself, because you love me, lead me in the way everlasting. Whatever you want, I'm yours. Shape me. Reshape me. If there's things in my life that I'm gripping, that I'm supposed to hold with an open hand, move my fingers. I open them to you. If there's things in my life that you re- need to reshape, reshape. Whatever it takes, I trust you. I trust you. You know me. I trust you. Whatever you want, God, I'm yours. And when we come with this beautiful disposition of humility before the Father, He renews us. He restores us. He equips, prepares us. We become aware of His presence in whatever the circumstance is, we find ourselves and we experience Him carrying us. So how do we respond to this reality then? Now, what do we do to put ourselves in a position that, um, that we can become open, and not just open, but actually inviting uh, the presence of the Father in our lives? And how do we disposition or position ourselves to not just invite, but actually welcome His searching work, welcome His revealing work? You know, uh, I love the way that Timothy Keller says it, an, an author that I love reading. He says, you know, we come to the Scriptures and we come to the Father not just to search the Scriptures and not just to search for the Father, but to allow the scriptures to search us, to allow the Father to search us, to work in us, to transform us, to change us as we, as we journey um, in the ways that He's calling us to. How should we respond? A couple of things real quick. Number one, I think we need to foster trust. We need to ask God to um, work in us and grow our faith. He is the author and the perspector of our faith. But we need to enter into that journey as well and continue to foster our trust in the Father. How do we do that? How do we foster trust? You know, we speak a lot about the gospel, right? In some of our churches, we probably speak about the gospel more than other churches. The gospel, of course, is the good news the work that Jesus Christ has done on the cross and wants to continue to do in our lives, transforming, changing us, redefining who we are. The wonderful good news of, of His grace and His work in us. Love the gospel. And in many of our churches, and when I look on your kind of five uh, core values or, or, or however we title those, there's this idea that we go out and share the gospel with others. And I love that. I think that's so important. But more and more I'm realizing, especially in a culture that is becoming more and more antagonistic towards the values that Christ would have for us. The more that I realize is that while we need to go out and share the gospel, perhaps the first thing we need to do is share the gospel to ourselves, you know? That over and over again, we need to remind ourselves of this amazing good news of what Christ has done on the cross and what He wants to continue to do in us. He is transforming us. You know, um, we live in a time where Issues of mental health, anxiety, and fear, especially amongst adolescents, have reached epidemic proportions. When we do the research, uh, the, last, the last research I just read, Time Magazine put out an article in this past March. We were told that um, uh, suicide episodes or depressive episodes, uh, reported depressive episodes amongst adolescents have gone up by 60% between 2010 and 2016. So we see this movement, and there's all sorts of things that are contributing to it. But... One of the things I think that are contributing to it is that we spend 
way too much time focusing on ourselves and not nearly enough time focusing on Christ. And we have to shift our vision. We, 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 don't, we don't need to pursue self-esteem. We need to pursue Christ's esteem, seeing the beauty of who he is. David actually speaks to this in Psalm 42. He speaks of the idea of his soul in turmoil, and he says, he says um, um, oh, my soul, why so, you know, why, so, uh, uh, why so depressed within me? Put your trust in the Lord, yet will I hope in him. And he just, he, he begins to use his mind to actually preach to his soul to reshift his focus. You know, I think, we, you know, we have, a, we have an option. We can allow kind of our emotional center to dictate how we think. Or as followers of Christ, you know, when we come to God and we ask Him to renew our minds, and we begin to seek His truth and remind ourselves of the gospel what Christ has done on the cross, we take our minds and we preach to our souls to transform and change our emotions. And we love both our emotions, we love our mind. But we enter into this battle and we need, to, we need to be there. We need to foster our trust in God by remembering His incredible sacrifice and work on the cross and His continual work of the Holy Spirit shifting, changing, renewing, redeeming, restoring who we are. So we need to foster that trust. Second, I think we need to pursue humility. And again, this is hard in a culture that tells us the way to happiness is to make much of ourselves. Whereas the scriptures tell us that the way to happiness is actually to make much of the Father. i got to be honest with you. You know, many of the worst moments in my life are when I enter a room and I wrestle with the thoughts, what do other people think of me in this room? Or when I enter a room and the question that's running through my mind is, how can I impress these people in this room? It overwhelms me. I become consumed with this fear of what people will think or do. And yet true humility means that we begin to enter the room not looking to impress, but be impressed. <laughs> not looking to ask what do people think of me, but thinking, what do I think of, of them? How can I get to know? How can I engage? How can I love? How can I care? And I think this is the same with the Father. I think we need to pursue humility with God. We need to quit pretending that we need to impress Him, and we need to be more impressed by Him. And we need to allow Him to press into us and change and shift us. There needs to be this humility that just says, hey, it's not about me, it's actually about you, God. So what do you want? I'm in. I'm in. And then we discover that that's exactly what we were made for in the first place. So I think we need to foster trust. Number two, we need to pursue humility. And then finally, number three, I think we just need to create some space. We need to create some space where we can just allow ourselves to experience the presence of God and be surrendered and submitted to Him and allow Him to renew our mind. So here, here's the practical takeaway. Um, a number of years ago, I'm, I'm busy. One of the things I do is I journal. And uh, so I, I, I'm an early morning guy and I journal stuff and work through stuff. And, and I wasn't satisfied. You know what I mean? You know those seasons where you're just not really satisfied with kind of your emotional disposition or the way you're relating or engaging others? You become aware of kind of this underlying tone of anxiety that just seems to be present in your being kind of no matter where you are. And anytime you try to create quiet space, it's like you just can't. Your brain is moving. The fears come. It's really, it's a difficult journey. I get, this was my journey. And I was just kind of going like, God, I don't feel like I'm really hearing your Holy Spirit. You know, when we use that language, that's an interesting language. But here's what it means. It means that, that when, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he, he died to remove our sins, of course. He rose again three days later, and he, he left us the Holy Spirit in us to make us more into the image of Him, to renew and make us, make us human, make us like Christ, the people we're supposed to be, right? So there's this, the Spirit's at work changing and transforming us. And so, so I'm, I remember I'm just praying and going, I just don't feel like, 
like, like the Spirit's doing a work in my life in this way. And the Bible tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. These are wonderful traits that we would all love to be defining of us, right? Like, we'd love that. If that's who I was, that would be awesome. If that's who the people I was with, if that defined who they were, love to be with those people. That'd be great, right? So I'm just praying, and I'm just going, man, I don't feel like the Spirit's really at work in, in my life. And I, and I went to my wife, and, and I just said to her, I said, babe, you know, I just feel like I'm not really hearing God these days. And all of a sudden, she just kind of stops and looks at me, and she goes, well, it's going to be pretty hard to hear him if you don't ever stop to listen. And I was like, whoa. And I was, you know, so I was a little bit defensive. I go, well, do you ever listen? You know, good comeback, Sid. That's awesome. And she goes, yeah. In fact, every Tuesday, I have like no people zone where I don't let anyone in the home. And all Tuesday morning, I just try to listen. I'm just like, wow, weird. Didn't know that was happening. Okay, good. So now I'm kind of confronted, you know. And so I, I, I remember I just started spending some time going, Lord, what is it in my life that's keeping me from actually listening or hearing you? And so this took a little bit of time. I started jotting stuff down. And then one of the things that I jotted down that I just couldn't get away from was this idea of how much time I was allowing sports to consume my mind. Now, this is funny to me because I get on my kids a lot about their video games. Okay, like I'll be honest with you, the number one kind of point of, of angst in our home between myself and my boys are video games. In fact, I'm, I'm currently right now, I just changed my thesis work. I'm doing my doctorate in next generation work. And I announced to my boys the other day that I'd shifted my thesis. And my new thesis, we were sitting in the living room. I said, my new thesis, boys, is how technologies and social media is affecting faith formation in teenagers. And my youngest son, Cole, jumps up and goes, Dad, why do you always study stuff that wrecks our lives? Why do you have to be that guy? You're always trying to wreck my life. And so, and so that, and as you can imagine, entered into an interesting conversation. So anyways, this is the thing that we always talk about with our boys, but it was funny to me. The one thing I don't really like talking about is sometimes the role that sports plays in my life. And I started evaluating myself a little bit, and I realized that I had some interesting habits. Um, every morning when I would drive to work, I would turn on sport talk radio. So this was when I was living in southern Alberta. That was on every morning I drive to work. Um, uh, at, after work, if I had spare moments and I just needed to relax, I would read Sports Illustrated. I had it on my iPad, so I'd read that lots of times. Before I would go to bed, I would watch Sports Desk, and sometimes twice over. No idea why I did that. I just did it. So that was like... I started, I started adding it up. I was like, wow, I'm actually spending a large number of hours every day just watching, reading, or listening to sports. And I just started thinking to myself, I guess, you know, that's the one thing that seems to be consuming my mind a lot. What would happen if I just took a break? Uh, a, a word that the Bible uses to speak to that might be fasting. What if I just fasted from listening, hearing, or reading sports for a while? What would that do in my kind of mental space. And so because I don't like going on difficult journeys by myself, I phoned my friend Chris up right away and said, hey, Chris. He's like, what? I said, dude, we're going to do this really cool thing. It's called fasting. He's like, mm, not so sure about that. I was like, no, you're going to love it. Just say yes. Yes. Okay, great. Next 40 days, we're not watching, listening to, or reading sports. Done. He's like, I don't know that I really like this. I said, me neither, but let's do it together. We can both hate this together. That'll be great. So we decided that we'd take 40 days lenting and just, just get out of it. And so it was fasting. The first week, it was almost like I went through withdrawals, like I kind of got the shakes and I was jittery and people didn't really like being with me. I think that might be what it would be like if I quit coffee, but God has told me I don't have to do that. So I'm really excited about that. So, so we quit it for the first week. And then it was really fascinating. After that first week, all of a sudden, it was like there was this type of peace that started to enter into my kind of brain journey. Now, part of it is because, you know, I cheer for the Calgary Flames. And so that leads to a lot of emotional ups and downs. But now I wasn't even aware of what they were doing. So I didn't have 
have to worry about that anymore. You know what I mean? There's just like levelness in my journey. And then after like kind of week two, all of a sudden my thoughts started to shift. I started to think about different things because my mind wasn't being filled with that information over and over again. And, all, and suddenly it was like I had this new space to just hear God's voice in my life. And it began to change me, started to shape me. I read, it stuck longer, started to meditate, which meant started going deeper. And, and all of a sudden, it just it had this, this started having this renewing effect in my life. And you know what it, what it said to me? It said, again, like, one of the reasons why I don't hear God's voice very well is because I don't often spend a lot of time listening to His voice, you know? And so this has kind of become a bit of a pattern in my life where I'll have seasons where I'll get busy and then I'll take a break and kind of fast from different things and just create this space to become aware of the Father. And as I become aware of Him, He begins to work in me and shape me and I begin to trust Him and then we go deeper and He shapes and He renews and the joy is greater. We go deeper and there's this wonderful movement of God at work in my life. Here's our point this morning. God knows us. But the question is, will we trust Him? And as we trust Him and lean into Him, He renews us. And we become more of the people He has designed us to be. Let me pray. Father, I love you. Thank you for our time this morning and thank you for your word. Thank you that you are present. You are present. And Lord, there are so many different things that each of us are wrestling with here. Life is different and unique. You know that full well. Father, first of all, I pray that you would give us this deep sense that you are with us in whatever it is we find ourselves. Help us to know you are with us. Just make that so clear right now. Because Jesus Christ, when you died on the cross, you didn't stay in the grave, but your word is clear. Three days later, you rose again. Now you are with us. Your spirit is with us. Thank you for that truth. But not only are you with us, you are for us. You want our good. You want to lead us into ways that are for our good, for shaping us to be the people you have originally created us to be. Father, I pray that truth would be so clear to us this morning. And Father, and then finally, Lord, move us to space where we would lean into that reality, where we would entrust ourselves to you. And Lord, if there are any spaces in particular, God, right now that we know we need you to work on, we need you to shape or reshape or restore or redeem or recreate, Give us courage, Lord, to just come to you humbly and openly and just invite you to search us, to know us, to see if there's anything in us that is not of you and invite you to lead us in the way of righteousness, in the way that you would have us go. And may we experience your work in our lives for your glory and for our joy in your holy name. Amen.